1: This is Mark Schaefer, author of Cumulative Advantage, How to Build Momentum for Your Ideas, Business and Life Against All Odds. And you're listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett.
2: Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a Specific marketing or sales book, or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you. And I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Mark Schaefer back to the Marketing Book Podcast for the seventh time to talk about his new book, Cumulative Advantage, How to Build Momentum for Your Ideas, Business, and Life Against All Odds. Mark Schaefer is a globally recognized speaker, educator, business consultant, and author. Mark has worked in global sales, PR, and marketing positions for more than 30 years and now provides consulting services and marketing training for both startups and global brands such as uh, Dell, Johnson & Johnson, Adidas, and the United States Air Force. He has advanced degrees in marketing and organizational development and is a faculty member of the graduate studies program at Rutgers University. While earning his MBA, Mark studied under the legendary management consultant, educator, and author, Peter Drucker. Mark is the author of seven other best-selling books – And since this is the Marketing Book Podcast, I'm going to tell you what the books are. Return on Influence, which was the first book on influencer marketing. The Dow of Twitter, the best-selling book on Twitter. Social Media Explained, Untangling the World's Most Misunderstood Business Trend. Born to Blog, Building Your Blog for Personal and Business Success, One Post at a Time. The Content Code, Six Essential Strategies to Ignite Your Content, Your Marketing, and Your Business. Known, Building and Unleashing Your Personal Brand in a Digital World, and Marketing Rebellion, The Most Human Company Wins. His blog, Businesses Grow, and his podcast, The Marketing Companion, are among the very top in each category. He has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Wired, Forbes, Fortune, CBS News, and many other global media outlets, such as The Marketing Book Podcast. And interesting fact, Mark is the <laughs> king of the Marketing Book Podcast, having been on the show more than any other author. Mark, congratulations on cumulative advantage, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast.
1: Well, I'm delighted. And as we discussed before the show, I've just been watching this date on my calendar, waiting it, waiting to be here because this is the first interview I've ever given about this book and you are the best. And so we're starting off with a bang here.
2: Well, thank you very much for your kind words and I'm really honored and I don't know if you recall this, but I am president of the Mar- of the Mark Schaefer fan club. And I wasn't elected. I seized control when I saw the opportunity, though. So
1: Well, it's funny cuz I think you're also uh the R&D director of the Marketing Companion Labs for my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you're the king of made-up positions. <laughs>
2: Well, Yeah, that's been my whole strategy. Uh, but also, I am full of ideas if I don't have to implement them. So be careful to you <laughs> as well as to the listeners or anyone that asked me for advice. Now, I should say that you are the king of the marketing book podcast. Uh, there are two other uh, very well-known uh, authors who've been on six times, and now you are jumping ahead once again... And reclaiming your rightful throne, and actually, pressure's on. Pressure's on. Well, you know, you're just you're you're, you're keeping them. You know, keeping them, letting everybody know because you were the first author. I think I had four times, and then five times, and then six times, and now the seventh. But actually, mm-hmm. you've been on eight times because I also interviewed you for this special series uh, in oh, right. 2020 called "Authors in Quarantine yeah. Getting Cocktails," where we were yes. both drinking. And you were mm-hmm. celebrating having just recovered from coronavirus, and that was a great, a great interview. Mm. So
1: never for, forget that one.
2: Yeah, and actually, um, I think you said uh, that coming on the show was was yet another goal for you for authors in quarantine getting cocktails because. It gave you something to look forward to. It gave you a little interim goal. Like I'm going to get better, yeah. so I can have a drink with with uh, Doug. So
1: yeah, yeah. I, I think that was the first interview I did after I was six. So you're you're full of milestones in my life too, Doug. <laughs> well, that's
2: great. <laughs> that's great to hear. I'll take it. You know, whatever I can get. And and now. There's a lot of marketing book podcast listeners in the United Kingdom, and I just have to be very clear because they're so sensitive about calling somebody king over there. Mark is mm. the king in the Elvis Presley sense, like he mm. was the king of rock and roll. So mm-hmm, not in the mm-hmm. you know British monarchy sense. Okay, so let's let's
1: let's keep in the that. affectionate sense.
2: Yes, there you there you go, and. uh I was also, just uh, inside baseball here, uh, I was delighted to see you mentioned some uh, friends of mine who are also listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast, Evelyn Starr and John Asperian. They were involved in the book, and John has been on the show uh, to talk about his uh,
1: excellent book, uh, Content DNA. Well, Evelyn will be on your show soon, because she has a new book coming out. Oh, oh well, then I guess uh, I'm yeah. not that good a friend, because she did about I, that. And I had a... I had well. She she hasn't talked much about it yet, but I know about it because I got to be a a beta reader for the book. Oh, and, okay. Uh, yeah. So excellent, uh, excellent. Yeah. Well, at the end, towards the end of this book, on
2: page one seventy nine, you described writing Return on Influence was an adventure in intellectual curiosity, and that was, I think, your first book, uh, Return mm-hmm. on Influence. But. I saw that and having read uh so many of your books I thought you know that's the theme of nearly every book you write though this intellectual curiosity in that there seems to be something going on in our world that you don't have the answer to and you're not content until you figure it out and write a book about it and that that seems to be the the paradigm
1: that was probably led you to cumulative advantage as well Yeah that's that's true and I think Uh, One of the authors that I admire so much is is Malcolm Gladwell, and I think my style in a way is is Gladwell-esque in that he pursues some curiosity, and he goes deep, deep, deep into this curiosity, and he finds compelling research and surrounds it with uh, interesting stories. And I think that's what I what I've done in this book too. It's it's not necessarily strategic. I mean, it's not like like Malcolm. I mean, Malcolm doesn't create a consultancy around one of his ideas. But um, to me, writing a book is such an intense commitment. It's you know a year or in most cases two years of my life. So it's got to be something important. It's got to be something big that I can be all in and really commit to. And it's solving a problem. And the problem this time is, uh, you know, we're all in this world of overwhelming information density. And when I started teaching at uh, Rutgers, one of the subjects I teach about there is is digital marketing. And I used to have this little formula for how do you create content that stands out? And it was R-I-T-E. Relevant, interesting, timely, and entertaining. Then around 2015, I realized that's not enough. (laughs) If you follow all the rules and do a great job, you also have to be superior. Because if you do all those things and you're still not the best in your field, people are going to leave you and they're going to go to whoever's best. So my little formula became R-I-T-E-S. And here we are in 2021, and I realized that even that S is not enough. And one of the uh, oh sort of frustrations, I guess you'd say, I have with people in the in the marketing world is they say, Oh well, the problem isn't that there's too much content. The problem is there's too much bad content. And I'm thinking, who says? The content in the world has become amazing. Sure, there might be some opportunities out there, but the competition is getting greater and greater and greater. And even, Doug, during the pandemic, I'm seeing statistics like content being published on LinkedIn since since last March when the pandemic started. It's up 80, 90% just in a short period of time. And so even being great isn't enough. So, what's next? What do we need to do? And the uh, and I think the answer that seems to be resonating with a lot of people is momentum. What is momentum? And uh, what I learned is that there's really great research and science behind this idea that's been sitting in academic circles of of sociology departments, and it really hasn't been applied to our world our lives, and our businesses in a practical way. And that's what I try to do in this book.
2: Yes, and interestingly enough, today I was listening to some news podcast, and I can't tell you which one it was, and someone mentioned the Matthew effect. And we're going to talk about that. I was like, I'm really attuned to it now. So Mm -hmm. let me just read this one excerpt from the beginning. At its essence, marketing today is about answering one single question. How can we be heard? How can we rise above the din of infinite options to create sustainable meaning with an audience or group of customers? I'm convinced that following the old rules of digital engagement is not enough. Not nearly enough. A content strategy isn't enough. Social media isn't enough. SEO isn't enough. Being great at what you do probably isn't enough. This book will demonstrate how the world is stacked against us in big ways and small and provide new ideas to help us rise above these barricades. So, Mark, I'm going to ask you a question, and I'll come back in about 45 minutes and see how you're doing. (laughs) Oh, what a setup. (laughs) What is cumulative advantage, and what does it have to do with you, Tim Ferriss, and my close personal friend Oprah. That is
1: a big question. <laughs> well, I, I I took a risk with this book. I took a lot of risks with this book, actually, as you know. And uh, one of the risks is is I came up with this idea to have a comparison between my career and Tim Fer- Ferriss's career, and why he knows Oprah. And I don't. And I just thought this would be sort of a fun little step by step race to follow through the book as a way to tell a story and see how we applied these ideas of momentum and cumulative advantage to our own uh, careers. And why ultimately Tim became a global media sensation and superstar. And why I, you know, I've, look, I'm very grateful for all the success I've had, but I'm no Tim Ferris. And as the book explains somewhat, at least, that was by design. Well, I need to interrupt, though, Mark. You both are kickboxers. <laughs> That's
2: news to me. <laughs> well, t- uh, Tim is a he lot of. He has a things. kickboxing title. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I thought, oh, yeah, so does Mark. I'm sorry, I well,
1: interrupted. So and the th- and the reason why I thought this was so fascinating is because the idea of cumulative advantage is the, the research started in the in the 1960s by a, a guy named Robert Merton. And he grew up very, very poor. He had to quit school to help his family make ends meet. Basically, he was self-educated, got a scholarship to Temple, got a scholarship to Harvard, ended up being a professor at Columbia University. And he was inspired by his students there. And it kind of connected some dots in his mind that it seemed like the people who make it, the people at the top, they just seem to stay there. The rich get richer the poor get poorer. And he wrote this very famous paper paper called The Matthew Effect. And as this idea has been expanded over the years, it's become called cumulative advantage. And they've shown this idea that someone who has a small advantage over others in their field can increase this gap between the haves and have-nots without end unless... There are countervailing processes, mm-hmm. and that's that became my obsession. What are these countervailing processes? If you don't have some advantage, if you didn't go to Harvard, if you don't have a million dollars in the bank, if you don't have connections at country clubs and, and, and big uh, business conferences, how can you do this? How can you create this momentum on your own? And I use Tim Ferriss as an example because, Tim, what a bright, ambitious, brilliant man. But if you look at him on paper, what he was like in his 20s, he was a mess. <laughs> he, he, there was no way to predict this guy is going to be this huge advantage. He's going to be this huge media star. What the heck happened? How did he do this? He, you know, he was ailing physically. He was ailing mentally. He didn't have money in the bank. He lost his business. He's driving this old clunker, and boom! Ten years later, uh, you know, he's friends with Oprah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought this is going to be an interesting thing to do. To do and and so as I researched the book, I was also researching Tim, and it, it just blended. Almost in a magical, mystical way, that the very things that I sort of researched and and uh, my hypothesis, it just sort of fit his career exactly. His story fit the narrative,
2: right? Uh, but Mark, let me let me contrast that and let's talk okay. about something that you don't normally like to talk about, which is you. Okay, so Tim. By all means, other than having gone to Princeton, he really looked like he was at a standstill and was right. probably not going to be voted most likely to succeed. Right. Okay. So, at right, right about the time he started, you know, gearing up and and, and getting some traction, so that's about the same time Mark Schaefer, uh, I think you mm-hmm. left Alcoa and you started on this new track. Now, right. By all other measures, you looked like you had uh, much more advantage than, than huge did. advantage. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Did all this education? <coughs> You'd had a really successful career, and so forth, and uh, a lot of connections, and and all that sort of thing. Now you all went in t- two different directions, you know, purposefully. But in the book, you talk—I had no—you talk about this cumulative advantage, and I had—I was not aware of it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I didn't know the science behind just how much like. Somebody who wins a Nobel Prize, they were often involved in helping someone else win a Nobel
1: Prize. Isn't and, it amazing? Yeah, things like I mean, that. S- some of the st- eighty eighty four percent of the Nobel Prize winners worked for another Nobel Prize winner.
2: Yes, and so that was just one of several examples of, of the mm-hmm. advantage. And then, of course, I read the book and I think, oh my goodness, I am so I, I was even more grateful. I, I was I was just filled with with gratitude. And also in the book, you talk about people who think uh, that they pulled themselves up from the bootstraps and, and did well. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of a myth. And it brought to mind a few other books on the show where about startups, where they talk about how, you know, the truth is, it's not a Mark Zuckerberg who tends to start most of these businesses. It tends to be like yeah. a 42-year-old guy with really good education and a lot of wealth to begin with.
1: Well, I think One of the things I hope people take away from this book, and and some of the early feedback, I I think this is certainly coming true, is that this is a book of hope. It's a book of hope. And it shows through lots of research and, and lots of inspiring case studies that there is nothing in this book. I talk about five different aspects of momentum, five really strings you can pull to create momentum for your own. And the thing that I hope resonates with everyone is that you don't need an Ivy League education to do this. You don't need money. You don't need connections. There's nothing in this book that is not doable and accessible to anyone that has some discipline, really.
2: Yes, and, and, and this is, I think that's why – It's backed up the, with
1: research. Oh, absolutely. Also,
2: the f, it made me more mindful of uh, the success others have, and why I think that's important for a lot of readers is that mm. uh, they will say, well, you know, it might be someone with a more fatalistic attitude where they think, I'm, mm. I'm never going to be able to do this or that because it yeah. seems like the world is stacked against me, and there's – Right. It is. But, it is. <laughs> <laughs> this, that became very clear to me, uh, but this shows how to do that. Let's let's go through some of these. Um, mm-hmm. Let's start with initial advantage, and I want you to explain what you mean when you say success
1: is a collision of events. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems weird, but it's so true. And, and let me just give you a, an example from the book. And uh, a lot of this thinking – is, is based on work that was done by a researcher named Franz Johansson. He wrote this book, many books, but he wrote this book called The Click Moment, where he illustrates that almost every successful person and every successful business basically started by luck, by some accident. And there's one story that I think is quite charming, where there was a, a, a track coach and back in the day, in the in the, you know in the early days of uh, you know, he was a high school track coach, the shoes you had literally had metal spikes on the bottom of the shoes. You know you, that's probably not a good thing to introduce in a high school athletic environment. So he's thinking, boy, what could we ever do to get rid of these dangerous shoes? So he's sitting at breakfast one day, and his wife is making waffles, and she he, he he's sitting there and he watches her peel a waffle off this waffle iron and he bolts out of the house without saying a word runs to his office comes back to the kitchen with chemicals when you mix them together it makes latex and he poured the latex in this waffle iron he peeled the the cooled latex off this waffle iron and he said you know what that could be the bottom of a shoe and that's how nike was formed and fun fact that beat up rusty old waffle iron is on display at Nike headquarters like a museum piece. Wow. Great it's, story, it's, yeah. Yeah, and 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 so but if you look at almost Microsoft same way. Why did Microsoft become Microsoft? Because Bill Gates was the only teenager in the country to have access to early computer prototypes. He was the first one to really do computer coding that was his initial advantage it wasn't money it wasn't education it's just he had he was there at the right place at the right time and then you know he he jumped through the next thing we're going to talk about probably which is this idea of the seam yes. the idea of initial advantage again is that these ideas these doors of opportunity are constantly opening for everyone and we just have to pay attention to what's going on and and follow our curiosity. It's, it, it's really an endless quest to be finding ideas and testing ideas.
2: Yes, and you write that success is far more random <laughs> than we want to believe. <laughs> and uh, that we don't uh, consider how all these random connections are happening to us all the time. And, you know, you talked about curiosity. How else can we become more... Uh, aware of them. you know, you, you quoted uh, Walter Isaacson uh about, mm. you know, insight uh mm-hmm. requiring this this uh curiosity and looking for patterns. But what can what can people do to just to make themselves more uh sensitive to these sort of random insights?
1: Well, one thing that I think is really important and it's actually very relevant and and kind of a challenge right now is that a lot of this Insight. A lot of these opportunities for initial advantage are created through serendipity. You just—it's—it might be someone that you're sitting next to at a conference, or you go to a new city and you see something that you've never seen before. I'll give you a, 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 a kind of a fun and fanciful example. A couple of years ago, I was in Prague, and in Prague they have these—they—they they have this thing that makes this. Sort of like a donut thing, and it's, it's on a, a smoker. They turn this thing on a smoker, they pull it off, and they fill it with like a chocolate cream or a vanilla cream. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, why don't they do this in America? this would be amazing. People would love this. Okay. Now I didn't do it because I have no interest in being in the food business, but that's an exact example of serendipity. And why this is somewhat in jeopardy right now is because of the pandemic. We're not going new places. We're not meeting new people. And so one idea for everyone is to think about the importance of randomness. The importance of serendipity and if we're not experiencing this right now how do we mindfully inject it into our lives one of the things i've done i'm experimenting with this app called lunch club and what it does is you say i'm interested in this 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 and then it says okay Give us a time and a date, and we're going to match you with a business professional who's interested in the same things. I've done this six times now. I say five out of the six have been amazing. I found new ways to collaborate with these people who I never heard of before. Never don't know them, never heard of them, but I learned something new and got a new idea from every single one of them. That is how an example of how I'm introducing randomness that leads to insight and innovation in my life. That's great.
2: And there was another of several things you uh, explain in the book, and this one is solid gold for any kind of insight as well as uh, companies. And it's this Japanese uh, Kaizen principle of going to Gemba. Yeah. Right. I loved it. Can you explain what that is? I'd never heard of that before, but it's it, yeah. it works. And and I think that's the same page you even talked about. Martin Lindstrom. He
1: does that all the time. Martin is the king, isn't he? Of uh that's really where he gets his, his insight is whatever uh company he's working with, um, he goes down in the trenches and he does that work and he meets the customers and he? he talks to the employees and and that's where he, he Almost always, that's where he gets his insights. And the idea from from me in this is, I when I worked in uh, in the business world I worked for a, a big uh, company called Alcoa at the time, it was a Fortune one hundred Dow Jones Industrial Company, and they were heavily into the Toyota production system. So I was immersed in this, and one of the principles of this is is the importance. In the old days, one of the terms we used to use was management by walking around. Same idea, Mm -hmm. right? Get out where the value is being created, wherever that is for you. It could be the manufacturing floor. It could be a conference. It could be uh, a a professional meeting. Uh, It could be a customer group. But get out there and and really look and watch and observe and there will always be little uh little lights lightning sparks of inspiration that occur
2: yeah well let's move on to this concept of the seam and i had mm-hmm. i i just was not aware of this concept and it works so beautifully i appreciate you uh sharing it, it explains- you know why you weren't
1: aware of it I don't read enough books, obviously. No, because I invented it. <laughs> oh! Well, now I feel better. <laughs> Nobody's heard of it.
2: <laughs> but it made... Really? Wow. Uh, it, it, well, it made so much sense. And you even talk about... Uh, you used American football as a, as an example of, of mm-hmm. how it works. And I just... I, I thought it worked well. And also, you mentioned uh, Porter's. Uh, rules, Michael as, Porter. yeah, Michael Porter's mm-hmm. rules, maybe set up the the difference there and why this seam concept
1: uh, is now permanently stuck in my head. That's good. <laughs> my my job is over here. <laughs> so, uh, and and one of the things that's that's maybe kind of a fun fact about this book is this chapter about the seam, which talks about why strategy is different today. A, 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 had its origins in. I was going to write an entire book about this one idea, and I just thought that that it worked better here as as under this umbrella of of cumulative advantage. And the idea is that for for decades, our view of strategy was rather stagnant. So, and this was dictated in some ways by Michael Porter. Michael Porter wrote this book called Competitive Advantage. I remember when I was a young person in business, this was the Bible of strategy. Everybody read this book. The the, the guy, uh, he is, you know, he's the dean of business strategy. And uh, he created a consulting group called the Monitor Group. And a few years later, after he created this consultancy, which is helping businesses apply his philosophy about strategy, a few years later, he went bankrupt, couldn't pay the light bills. Now, how is this even possible? The greatest strategic mind, the greatest academic in his field, the best-selling author, the most lauded consultant went bankrupt couldn't even follow his own strategy and the reason is this because it's based on the idea that business is is linear and it's stagnant that once you pick a lane you stick to that lane and optimize and what he didn't consider especially in the internet era is that business is not stagnant it's dynamic and 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 with the advent of the internet, it became furiously dynamic. So an idea I actually started thinking about, I'd say maybe five or six years ago, I was in conversations with a friend of mine at the University of Chicago. And we we started talking about this idea. I do not I don't think we called it the seam. I think that was my word. But we talked about how strategy today has to be like American football. And there's probably plenty of people that are listening that don't know anything about American football and you don't need to. But if you can imagine, you have two teams facing off strength against strength. They literally line up face-to-face against each other. And the goal is to is for the offensive team to burst through that defensive line to find some weakness. And the coaches are, are, are sitting high above the field and they're trying to find any opportunity to, that you can burst through that line. And that's the strategy. Is you find an opportunity and strategy becomes a function of time and space and speed. It's not finding a lane. It's right now. You find this opportunity and you burst through it. Interesting observation. In my research I found uh, Bloomberg keeps this list of the 100 richest people in the world. 10 of those multi-billionaires have no had no cumulative advantage we could say. They grew up dirt poor, they didn't go to college, and yet they become become these unimaginable wealthy people. They all did the same thing. They found a trend and they burst through it with time, space, and speed, and they drove it as far as you can. And by the way, in this model of momentum that I created, the role of marketing is to hold open that seam as long as you can,
0: mm-hmm.
1: to keep the competitors away, to find out you know what is distinguishing about us, where you shouldn't even look at these competitors. You know, keep keep running as hard as you can along with us. And so, that's really what this idea of the seam is about. In, in my book, I talk about what does this mean? Is timing just luck or is there something we can do to sort of move the odds our way? And uh, so, it, it, it's, I'm, I'm glad you like that idea and it, and it meant so much to you because I think, I think it is one of the stronger insights in the book.
2: Absolutely. It, it really is one of the the big, big takeaways for me. And you write, a seam is an undefended or under-defended opportunity. It's a fracture in the status quo. So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, what are some of the let's, – let's dig into that a little bit. What are some of the questions somebody c- should be asking to determine if there's a, a seam opening up for them, you know, like an undefended
1: uh, opportunity or something like that? And, and one of the things that I, I think is important to talk about is that – in, in March of 2020, when the pandemic was starting, I wrote a blog post and I predicted there would be more startups in America of any time in our history. And that prediction came true. And there are more startups in America right now. We've, of course, this is an economic crisis and we have many, many small businesses failing, but we have more startups than the number of businesses that are failing, actually. And we have a record number. Why? Why did I know this was going to happen? Because it's a fracture in the status quo. Creating a new business is finding this unmet or underserved customer need. And oh my gosh, in the pandemic, we have so many new unmet and underserved customer needs. So, it, you just have to have this awareness and and think about your own your own reality what's missing what what would I do if I were king of the world how would I solve this problem is did, did your neighbor tell you about the some problem they're having because of the pandemic you know are your children? Having some issue with homeschooling that you can apply something in your background or something in your experience to help solve. So that's really the first step is to is to look at the relevance. Is this going to be relevant to now? Am I meeting some underserved or unmet uh, need? And then the, the hard part, the difficult part of this is questioning the idea of timing. And timing is really important and timing in a lot of ways is random. You know, I've had opportunities in my life I was too early. I was just yeah, like a uh, return on influence. Return on influence. I I have a chart in the book that shows I was I wrote I was ahead of my time. I was 2 years ahead of my time that the idea of influencer marketing, I saw it coming. I wrote the book about it, but it, it didn't really become a significant search term on Google until two years after I wrote the book. So uh, look, I had a book contract. <laughs> so it was the right time for me to do it, but I could have been a lot more successful and made a lot more money on that book if it had come out in 2014 instead of 2012. In 2012, nobody was even using that term, but I had a seam. It was an undefended opportunity. I knew it and I, and I burst through and it was a best selling book, so I have no regrets. Um, but t- timing is really important. So I do have some questions in the book that can help nudge you closer to having advantage in terms of timing. And it really gets down to the worthiness of the idea. And I have questions that people can kind of walk through to test. Am I, am I willing to really work on this idea, to stick it out, to battle for this idea? And, uh, I, I think that that's the best advice I can give around timing.
2: You know chapter Four was was so super concentrated, and that's where you've got all of these things. In other words, don't go with your gut, folks. <laughs> if nothing else, read chapter Four and you walk th- folks through uh, this process, all these questions they should be asking, and mark, every one of these questions even if they're not looking for a seam, they should be asking themselves anyway about right. their business, whether they're looking for the seam or not. Just these six questions on page 76 and, and mm-hmm. 77. Be all right if I just mention what these questions are? Sure. One, who are your potential customers? Uh, and then you've got paragraphs for each one of these. Two, what do they buy now? Three, what will they buy in the future? Four, why do they buy? <laughs> Five, what will make them buy from you? And number six is: is our advantage defensible? I mean, this is a. You really could. You used to, you may still want to do another book about this seam, just to give you an idea, because you do need to stay, mm. you know, the king of the marketing book podcast. But that <laughs> that, that that whole chapter was, uh, and there were some other things that you know you can you can. There's even things you walk them through about how do I. How might I try to guess if the timing is right? All of that. But let's go ahead to the next one, which is uh, the sonic boom. Explain mm-hmm. this. Let's get back to you and Tim and, and my, uh, my girlfriend, Oprah. Let's, uh, yeah. let's talk about
1: the sonic boom. Let's explain that concept here. Because that's very important. It is. It's. It's important, and I think it's. It's one of the most exciting chapters of the book, especially if you're in in marketing, because it it takes a different view of how things go viral and how you become, uh, a awa- of uh, how you can create massive sort of awareness, and there are two main ideas in this chapter. Number one, going viral doesn't occur like you probably think it does. So a lot of people imagine, "Oh, if I can get one person to talk about it, then their friends will talk about it and their friends will talk yeah, about it." Yeah. If I can
2: just get Mark Cuban to tweet about it.
1: Yeah. And and how it really works is you get it, you get a lot of attention from people with big audiences in a in a in a concentrated period of time in a few days or a week. So let me give you an example from my own experience. When I launched my last book, Marketing Rebellion, I sent out uh, these little influencer boxes to people who had big audiences. These, you know, mostly they were just my friends who were happy to do a favor for me, but they had big social media audiences. And what I was trying to do, I'm not worried about promoting the book Over six months, I'm not worried about a year. I'm worried about two weeks. And it's this idea, it's like a sonic boom. It's like pow, it's everywhere. And I knew it was working when I saw a tweet from a woman who said, I've seen Mark Schaefer's book mentioned four times today. I guess I should go buy it. And that's that's what gets the snowball going. And by the way, this research came from uh, BuzzSumo. It was authored by Steve Rayson, who's, who uh, sold BuzzSumo. But when he was the principal there, he's the one that, that that authored this important research. So that's idea number one. Idea number two: this idea of social proof. Now, most people in marketing know what that is, but what really was eye-opening to me was how this can influence momentum in dramatic ways, mm-hmm. that it can completely change a narrative about a product, how social proof, which is, if you haven't heard of this term, let me explain it very, very briefly. Let's say that you are you want to find a new restaurant. You go into this restaurant, there aren't any cars in the parking lot, and there aren't any people at the table at 7 o'clock. And... And it's not a pandemic, by the way. <laughs> so you're so you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not sure this is the right place. And you look across the street. There's another restaurant over there you never heard of. The parking lot is full. You go in, the tables are full, and the people and the, the lady at the front desk says, oh, uh, we can get you in, but you'll have to wait 15 minutes. And you said, sure. Now, you made a decision to go to this restaurant without knowing anything about how good the food is, how good the service is, or anything. You're basically looking, when you don't have the truth, when you don't have the facts, you get clues from your environment to come up with a hypothesis of the best action to take. And this is something we can manipulate in marketing. And I have a powerful, powerful case study in the book that shows how social proof can even overcome common sense, can even overcome quality. These university professors used social proof to manipulate an audience to think bad songs were good songs. Oh, right.
2: Yes. Well, it was really unbelievable.
1: Unbelievable. Unbelievable how, how, how social proof – because the, the big mistake – that marketers make is they think, "Oh, people are going to make a decision about this product, whether to go to my place, whether to buy what I'm selling, or someone else." People rarely make a decision on their own. They rarely make a decision in a vacuum. They're looking at reviews, they're looking at testimonies, they're reading articles on websites, they're asking their friends, and they make, uh, you know, they make a decision. I mean, my wife sort of has that role in our household. We don't even watch a movie on Netflix until she's read the reviews and looked at how many stars and Mm da-da-da-da-da. That's social proof.
2: Right. It's looking to see whose restaurant parking lot is full.
1: Yeah. And and, and, and – and and this this example just just came to my to my mind this is one of my favorite marketing stories about social proof the rock band kiss when they were starting out they bought these old these huge massive old amplifiers that didn't even work and so when they would go on a stage they'd have these things stacked to the ceiling to make it look like they were this big, powerful, rich rock band that could afford all this equipment didn't even work. It was social proof to make them look like it was important. <laughs> oh, wow. I just, I love that story.
2: Yeah, that's great. That's great. Let's jump back, if you don't mind, to Marketing Rebellion for just a minute. Sure. And related to that, explain what you mean when you say that today the customer
1: is the marketer. Well, that really does kind of go with the social proof idea, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're in an era, as we talked about, we're in this era of, of infinite media, really. And um, I think the lines crossed, uh, I believe it was 2004, maybe, where more uh, media was being created by consumers than by media companies.
2: Oh, yeah, that was 2009 in Matthew Sweezy's 2009. book. 2009.
1: Who Matthew points that out. Yeah, yeah Ma- and, and Matthew defined this as the era of, of infinite media because we had, before we had limited media because to be able to create media, you needed a broadcasting license or you needed a lot of capital to start a newspaper or something like that. But in the era of infinite media, now the consumers have taken over. And the, the, the other connection to this trend is that there's this amazing research that was done by by McKinsey, very famous research. It was conducted over a period of 10 years that demonstrated that two-thirds of our marketing is occurring without us, meaning I think they looked at 200,000 or almost 200,000 customer journeys and They weren't able to really see any sort of impact of marketing in two-thirds of them. That people are getting their information from other people, from reviews, from testimonies, from social media, from influencers. They're not getting it from traditional marketing channels. And I think the challenge is that you could certainly imagine that by 2030, it's not going to be two-thirds. It might be 90%. And so marketing today is really about how do we get invited to that two-thirds? How do we get invited to that conversation? And I think social proof plays a big part of that. And Mark, wasn't that research done like 15 years ago? It was started – okay. I, I mean, it wasn't just book. yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I was no, so that's amazed. the thing that was amazing. In Marketing Rebellion, I, 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 you I, talked I, about it and you said – "Yeah," and. This I want to say it was 2000, ago. I want to say, yeah, I want to say, I think you're exactly right. I think the, the first research report was in 2009 and then they, they continued to work on it and they wrote an updated report in 2000 and, and I think it was 2018 because I included it in my book. So, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's been staring us in the face. And when that report came out in 2009, it was, it was, it, it, it was Huge it was went viral, it was impactful, and then it's like everybody forgot about it. <laughs> right. It's like I wanted to
2: uh, who knows why my mind works the way it does. Well, when I read that in marketing rebellion, I remember thinking I would never do this, but I wanted to say, okay, now, for all of you who are clearly convinced that this whole internet thing is is a fad,
1: <laughs> this was ten years ago, people.
2: So anyway, no one will ever yeah, admit that it's a fad, it, right. It, 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 it
1: opens up a whole other discussion about why people aren't changing in the face of all this research and evidence. I
2: know, uh, I know.
1: and that's that's a discussion for another day because I've got lots of opinions on that. But
2: yeah, that's something I'm really fascinated by. Well, let's let's uh, go through the the other one here about mm-hmm. um uh re- reaching up and reaching out. What yeah? What is? Well, explain what that is because I didn't. I you know I wasn't aware of it, but I now I can look back and I can see exactly how it helped with you as well as, as Tim Ferris and what it has to do with uh, cumulative advantage and and also you talk about why this whole mentorship thing kind of needs to change.
1: Well, you know, again, let's go back to what we're trying to do here. Is that we're we don't we have the odds stacked against us, and in the book I kind of explain why and. If you're not in a place in your life where you're just riding this crest of a wave that was, that's created because you're rich or because you know someone in your family is famous or whatever, if you're just trying to build momentum for yourself, I think the single most important part of this book is this idea of, of getting launched into this new level of orbit by someone who can help you. And it, it it means updating our view of mentorship. And the 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 definition of mentorship that's prevalent on the web is this is, you know, a teacher or a tutor that develops a long-term relationship with you. And I think we need to blow up that idea that today it's really not about, necessarily, Teaching all the time. If you want to learn something, you need a Wi-Fi connection, and you know, go on Wikipedia or something. So the Karate Kid approach to mentorship is is not what we're talking about here. No, but if you're the Karate Kid, you do need mentorship. If you're, you know, if you want to become a, a a tennis pro, you do need a teacher. Mm-hmm. But if you want to create momentum, what you really need is introductions. You need opportunities. You need doors to open. And this is something. I actively uh, pursue in, in my life really in two directions, not just to reach up and reach out, but also to reach down because I'm in a position to create sparks of opportunity for other people. I do know about opportunities. I do know people who can help other people. And I I, I think that's a lesson – for all of us to sort of reflect on where we are in our lives, and if we want to make change in our life, maybe this is something we can all internalize and and start to uh work on a little bit mm-hmm. but
2: also brought to mind over the years, I've gotten you know like an email from somebody saying, "Hey, can you be my mentor and i'm I'm just mm-hmm. i'm uh, I don't know how to respond to that i <laughs> <laughs> you want my time for free <laughs> yeah." Yeah, they want to pick my brain. I know that's one of your uh, least favorite yeah. expressions. Right, uh, right. Uh, well, let's go on to the last one, which is about constancy. Can you explain uh, what that is? And you know, it's so um, it's so refreshing <laughs> to get, to get a reminder of things like you say. There's no substitute for consistent, steady progress. Consistency mm-hmm. is more important than genius
1: well it's something that it's a big flaw i think it's it's a fatal flaw in a lot of business plans and a lot of business approaches that people expect overnight success and and you know maybe it can happen i mean maybe somebody gets lucky but that is uh that's in the 0. 0.0001 percentile and that is not a case study, and that is not really a, a model that can be easily uh, replicated. And uh, most success, you just need determination. You just need to do. Uh, you need to do a little bit better week by week, month by month. And a story that that uh, had a big impact on me just as I was beginning what I would call my second career, you know, I had this big long career at at, at Alcoa and then I went out on my own and I'm trying to discover now, you know, I'm on the internet and I see all these people and their sensations and they're going viral. And I want to do that. And I want to do that right now. Mm -hmm. So I had a chance to go backstage and meet the fellas in the band, the black keys, great rock band. And And actually when I read that part, it brought to mind, Ferris Bueller, you're my hero because I love the Black Keys. <laughs> the Black Keys are just awesome, but this is when they were still—they were just on the cusp of, of greatness. I saw them play a club of maybe oh I don't know maybe it held uh, three or four hundred people, and you know a couple years later they 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 sold out Madison Square Garden in fifteen minutes or something like that. Yeah. But they had just recorded, you know, their the, the album that really started to take off for them, and I, I, I was talking to the drummer, Patrick Carney, and I said, "You know, Patrick, what was it? What was it? What like what was the thing that just the turn that turned the switch? What was it that just created this new level of momentum?" And it was a great lesson, and it was also a bit of a surprise. They said there was nothing <laughs> that we that it, there there isn't anything that we just keep working. And every album is a little bit better than the last one. And every concert is a little bit better than the last one. And if you listen to the stories of people who made it in business, that is the story you hear over and over and over again. And it's a matter of consistency. It's a matter of tenacity. It's a matter of grit, of being able to keep coming back and keep coming back and not giving up and this was also one of the themes in my book known that i i interviewed 97 people who became known in their field and every one of them told me uh, the biggest mistake that people make is they quit too soon mm. and and why this is a fatal flaw is that because we are we are not a society that has uh, out of patients. In general, we are not a society that really rewards patients. We're a society that, re- that expects and rewards immediate results. And we want, you know, quarterly improvements, uh, quarter by quarter uh, with inexorable process, uh, progress, excuse me. And, it, it, the, and, and momentum just doesn't work that way. It's like it builds and builds and builds and builds, and then all of a sudden the curve starts to get a little steeper and you and it starts to work a little more and it works a little more. and then boom, you're at the top. And I mean, there there's just no substitute for for grit and tenacity. And uh, I, one of the most important concepts, I think, is this idea that Jim Collins talks about is it's it's the doom loop where where things start to go wrong and you panic. and you start grasping at straws and you think, "Oh my gosh." Um, you know, uh, the original idea, my initial advantage, it, it 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 wasn't there. I thought the seam was there and it wasn't there. And this is important especially important now, Doug, because things are tough right now in a pandemic. And when I coach people who are really suffering, if I think that they do have a good idea and they have found the right seam, here's the goal. You've got to make it through the next year. Just make it. Whatever you need to do to get to the other side, don't give up on your idea. Don't give up on the seam. Things are tough right now, but your competitors are going to go away. And your goal is to make it through this one year, however you need to do it. And, you know, it's not for everybody. You got to do what you got to do. But if you found the right seam, if the timing is right, but things are just crashing right now because we're in this crazy time. Hang in there. Make it to the other side.
2: Yes. And uh, one of the, my favorite lines in the book, page 173, you write, There is no growth without momentum. There yeah. is no momentum without, without discipline.
1: Discipline.
2: <laughs> so, Mark, if readers took only one thing away from the book,
1: mm-hmm. what would you hope it would be? My hope would be that it is hope. Uh, is I just the thing that just landed on me in such a profound way is that this is accessible. That momentum is accessible. That there is hope. That there are countervailing processes. You don't need to have these inherent inva- advantages in your life and that that we can find these initial advantages we can test these seams we can create a sonic boom and you don't have to be a phd you don't have to be wealthy to do it and um, i hope people see this and i hope they're inspired to know that if you have the discipline to sort of follow this path it's doable I, I I just think there should be hope for everybody that comes out of this book.
2: Yes, and I know this will sound odd to you Mark, but in a certain way this book reminded me of Anne Hanley's book Everybody Writes mm, because mm, yeah. In fact, you mentioned a person in your book who was an author who had been told young that they couldn't couldn't write and she talks about that in her book about everyone had a middle school English teacher who told them they couldn't write. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. But when you read Everybody Writes, Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and every ever since I read that book, it's as if Anne is sitting there next to me while I'm writing something, saying, "That's great, you can do it." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't listen to those voices. And it was the same kind of experience for me when I was reading this. It's almost like Mark was saying, "Hey, man, I'm proud of you. You, you can do this. Uh, you know, I, I really think you can." And that's where all that that hope came in, and and it was very um, very inspirational. So, thank you, Mark let's give the listener something to do what what is just one small thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the many ideas from your book
1: well i i think where i would start would be the beginning because everything good and great starts with this idea of the initial advantage is uh, the spark and we're probably not even aware of all the opportunities that are bombarding us all the time and not just being aware, but I talk about this idea that it's, it's sort of a a quest of curiosity. Uh, Raji Thomas is one of the executives, one of the founders and inspirational stories I have in this book. And he said, look uh, everybody said, everybody thinks there's this founder story where you know, you have this idea and everybody has this great idea. He said, look, everybody has millions of ideas. But unless you pursue that idea, unless you engage in the quest, the idea really doesn't matter. It's just like my example of the the pastry in Prague. That could have been a multi-million dollar idea, but I just, I didn't pursue it. It wasn't right for me, but I let it sit there. There has to be a quest associated with this idea you have to pursue your curiosity and that's how everything good and great has ever happened for me almost everything great that's happened for me started with a random moment with you know just luck i told a story in the book about you know where i am today in my career a digital marketing consultant a, a, a college education educator someone who writes books about this how did it all start i was the first person of my company with an AOL subscription. I was the first person <laughs> That's right. in this in this Fortune 100 company that was on the internet. And so I knew more about the internet than anybody else. And so they said, well, why don't you run our new e-business department? <laughs> hey, you, AOL boy. <laughs> AOL boy. I was the AOL boy, literally. And, but, uh, but it was your curiosity. It was 100%. Yeah. I just had a hunch and uh, and I, I asked my asked my boss, "Could hey, can I put this AOL thing on my expense account?" <laughs> and after much debate, he agreed to it. And uh, that started everything. It was really that random. Mm. Follow your curiosity. There's a lot. Yeah. To, uh, pull pull
2: that thread. So, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or uh, have heard about that you're looking forward to seeing come out?
1: Well, recent books, you already mentioned, um, The Context Marketing Revolution by Matthew Sweezy. Yes. I think that's one of the most important books that's been written in the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I enjoyed Martin Lindstrom's new book very much, The Ministry of Common Sense, uh, because it's it, it's a good book, but it's also a, a highly, highly entertaining book. It's very, <laughs> yes. very, very very uh, funny. Do you know what um,
2: else? Can I add something? When you buy yeah. his book, he's got a program where they will send another book anonymously to your CEO. I just thought that was brilliant. Because it's a book about how common sense, there's a dearth yeah. of common sense, which is ruining the customer experience and the success of, of companies. <laughs> I just thought that was genius.
1: Yeah. You know what? I I, I didn't know about that pro-, pro program, but that truly is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so,
2: well, good. Um, At marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable in your your site, and uh, there's even a special uh, section on your site about the... Cumulative Advantage book, so I'll make sure to include yeah, a link to yeah. that and and to your uh, LinkedIn profile. And I hope that uh, if folks have been uh, have learned something new or been inspired, that you'll reach out to Mark and thank him for being on the on the podcast. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone, you've subscribed to the Marketing Book podcast on your favorite podcast app. All these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Cumulative Advantage, How to Build Momentum for Your Ideas, Business, and Life Against All Odds. The author is Mark Schaefer. Mark, thank you very
1: much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Always an honor and delight, Doug. Thank you for having me.
2: And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.